Previously on The Luddites. And of course, Brian, I promise not to uh, incite any violence on public figures on this episode. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure. I mean, it feels like the Luddite way, though, right? Like, you have to incite some violence. I mean, do it respectfully and not legally actionable, but you can, you know. (laughs) Against machinery. We will uh, stipulate against the machinery. Uh, That's right. And it is a core lesson of your your book. I think it's a really good lesson. I mean, we'll get into all that, that uh, the the mistake comes when you do actually start targeting um, people rather than the, the manifestation of their will, the machinery. Uh, but before yeah. we get into the thrilling story and the lessons of Luddism, um, at, you, you, you brought up right before we started recording, Brian, it's worth really talking about that. Um, as of our recording, the, the WGA has just struck a tentative, um, agreement, right. With the, with the studios, uh, the, after, uh, I'm, I'm uh, off the top of my head. It's been like what 128 days of striking, something around there. 146 days. 146. All right. Yeah. I don't. I don't want to begrudge them that 20 extra days of of striking. Like that's significant. It's fucking oh, yeah. massive. I mean, just to show how massive that is as well. So. Uh, I want to talk about this tentative agreement, but I think just it's worth putting in perspective how absolutely massive of a strike that is, how militant that union is, and how it got results, like real serious results against one of the most powerful blocks of capital in in the in the U.S. Um, My I am going on strike. So I'm part of the National Tertiary Education Union, which covers the whole university sector in Australia, um, both academic and professional staff, casuals, adjuncts, and permanent. Um, and, and we, I, I'm going on strike at my university uh, for two days. We have a 48-hour strike um, scheduled in a couple weeks. That is the longest strike at my university in um, like three decades <laughs> that and, and the University of Melbourne, their academics went on strike for a full week. And that was the longest strike since like uh, the 80s or something like that. Um, no, no, I'm sorry. That was the longest strike, I think, since uh, for like uh, 100 years or something. The previous strike that won us the eight hour workday. Um, that was the preview. That was an, you know, the eight hour workday is an Australian innovation. And yeah. the strike, the, it was, it was the, a massive general strike across Australia that won us the eight hour workday. And that strike, uh, the, the University of Melbourne just went on strike for a week and that, that was the longest strike since the eight hour workday strike. Um, and so it just shows that like, even in a place like Australia that has a really strong trade union uh, history and a really strong trade union presence, it's highly unusual to go on a strike. Uh, it is it is always the last resort, um, and it's highly unusual to keep and maintain a strike for extraordinarily long amounts of time. And so what we see happening with uh, the WGA is, I mean, it's unbelievable that they would go on strike for so long but they did it and they won. They won a massive victory. 
Yeah, it really seems like that. We still don't have all the details because they're still they need to vote on ratification and all that. And I absolutely, I you know, I think this, especially in the U.S., where for so long we had sort of like drifted away from any kind of uh, you know proactive labor actions, like as as great of a strike, kind of in general, we're really being reminded that strikes work. I mean. When I was uh, trying to get, when when I was part of the group organizing for our to try to get win our very first contract at uh, at Ed and I's uh, alma mater at Vice, um, we it was loggerheads forever. We got recognized right away uh, when we went when we showed up and and you know said that we'd all voted to form a union. So they recognized it right away. But then, as they do, they dragged out the the contract negotiations for boy almost like a year or something and finally we just said said enough and we started talking about just organizing one day of uh, of, a, of a walkout and when management got got they got a whiff of that and i got a call at like 10 o'clock at night and they said we hear there's going to be a walkout what what, what what can we do let's get to the table let's get to the table let's solve this like just that little like you know just that hint of hint of action in the air was enough to, to sort of really spur some, uh, some movement on, on management side. So they're just they're They are, you know, quite afraid of that above all. Um, and we're just, we're just seeing some, uh, not just the writers, but UPS before them here in the States that that contract is incredible. What the UPS workers won. Um, yeah, it's, it, it's, 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 it's really been, been quite, quite a year over here. And I think as we'll talk about, I, you know, I, and I speculate in this column that, that, uh, that I wrote today, that'll be coming out tomorrow that, you know, especially with the writers, it's very much interlinked with all these anxieties about AI, very justified anxieties and things like that. But by and large, I don't think it's any, you know, uh, sort of coincidence that these two things are happening at the same time, that there's this big drive towards, um, you know, enterprise level automation uh, in the air. Uh, you know, it's for, for a lot of reasons that we can go into. I mean, it's just like capital's like really a, r- relentlessly trying to find ways to cut costs because it's, it's at that point. But um yeah, and workers are, you know, finding solidarity in this in this fact that they're, you know, facing this the threat of automation. Um, immense solidarity. It's one of the things that linked the WGA and SAG together so strongly because they're saying like we're going to try to automate away, you know, background actor jobs by taking motion capture of uh, of your likeness and then using it in perpetuity. And they're like, no way. So there's like a catalyzing moment in both of those fights that kind of really made it clear that AI is something that not only is worth fighting against, but is this thing that you can mobilize uh, a lot of people uh, because it's you people feel that solidarity. I, just, I mean, my, the whole book's about that, really, about this solidarity people feel when they're, uh, you know, facing a top down technological uh, development that they have no say over that is threatening their livelihoods. So it's just I think it's worth you know, the, the, the labor movement and everybody who has a job, you know, thinking about that stuff. I've noticed even lately, like uh, a good friend of mine who created our wonderful TMK logo is also a graphic designer, but his specialty is beer labels. And lately, microbreweries and beer companies have been moving over and using uh, AI-generated images for their labels. Yeah. They don't have to pay anybody to do it. 
yeah. uh, and putting a lot of those folks out of work. And so now a lot of them are just going going to great lengths to shame these beer companies. And uh, a lot of them are realizing, you know, it may not to them they may not be, seem like some some type of leadism in action, but in reality it is. You know, yeah. they're raging. You know, they're raging against the machine that is taking away their job essentially by going after these breweries and saying, "Hey, no, you're not paying us, and you're you're just going on some AI generating website coming up with these crappy labels," and just goes to show how shitty your beer is. <laughs> Yeah, no, absolutely. It, it's a lot like, I mean, the artists are, I think, getting hammered the hardest illustrators, freelance artists, um, freelance people who do freelance graphic design, because yeah, when you do public facing work, right, you know, you can shame people, you can call it out. But I have artist friends who's like, you know, like you can't make a living making illustrations, even for like the New York Times, you get, you know, called maybe a couple times a month if you're lucky. And then you have to support that work either in academia or by taking on corporate clients. And the corporate clients don't care at all, like for their presentations, internal materials, things that they don't have to release to the public. Like that, that is where I think it's just dropped off. So my friends who are illustrators and um, no folks in that community have told me that that's just like, those have all just like, just, just dried up where there's no element of public shame possible. Um, and a good on your good on that crew for, for calling out, you know, the, uh, the, the beer label makers. Cause yeah, it is, it, you I mean, is this the society that we want where, you know, we're just going to automate away all of the design of s- stuff that is aesthetic or important. Like, I, you know, yeah. I don't think so. One of the things I really liked about, the column that you've written about, I think, also the the, the consistent thorough line through a lot of uh, commentary you've had about the strike also, is that reframing of the strike as, like, the first battle in this, uh, in, in, in what will be a vicious campaign, right, to prevent executives and management from using, um, you know, algorithmic oversight or automotive tech to get rid of labor, right? Because, you know, as you, as you, as you talked about, right, the, that catalyst of comes out of them just sitting down and saying, we, by the way, we don't want AI to make original scripts. And then the executives being like, what the, no, 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 no. And then realizing where, what their plans were. Right. And I think that sort of development uh, will end up, I think, has done a lot of good in like realigning how people are thinking about AI, not just as like a stupid, annoying thing that will encroach on our aesthetics and and make things in the society that we want work less or for someone else's benefit, but also realizing that people are willing to lie, uh, to exploit, to undermine, and to deploy it in ways that are duplicitous just so they can get what they want. And I think that's that, you know, this and especially the fact that they won has done a massive service now to giving people the tools, not only to articulate and think about why they don't want artificial intelligence inside of their labor process or inside of their workplace, but also doubting the reasons that their bosses might give for why it's okay. Yeah. You know, we all just owe, a big uh, debt of gratitude to both sort of the WGA and sort of this firm attack that they took, right? Like they drew a, a red line basically and said, no, you will not be use this technology and this application. Uh, you're not going to use chat GPT to write scripts. Uh, that's just, let's just leave that out. Now, I don't know if that's what they got at the end of the day, but it, that sort of, 
bit of Luddism basically uh, is, is what galvanized so much of the fight. And also in sort of like the artist realm, you know, where Molly Crabapple has been such a, a loud voice. And then she, she had to this open letter that's saying, you just, you know, ban this from your newsrooms. We don't even want to see it. And then sort of the authors guild representing authors got over 10,000 signatories basically saying, do not use our work without permission and compensation. So like all of these kind of red lines of, of, of varying sort of severity cropped up. And I think all of, all of those figures who like, I mean, cause like, we got to remember that they're pushing against this grain in, in America that is just like, you know, you guys talk about it all the time here and you know it so well, technological progress, you know, it's, it, it is equals good, you know, technology equals progress. You know, you can't to even say, you know, like, no, get this out of here. Just this one, you know, where th- this piece of technology is garbage. I want it out. Like, and then to rally the troops around that. This is why, this is why the elites and, 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 and the captains of industry and the entrepreneurial class has to constantly fight so hard to, you know, to mis mischaracterize Luddism, to treat Luddism as a bad word. Cause once word gets out there that, Oh, you can challenge some of this stuff. You can reject these uses of uh, technology and exploitative context. You can, you can say no, then uh, it, it starts to seem like a good idea. And we saw that with the writer's strike. So, um, you know, We'll have to see, but it's a powerful thing. Hello, friends and enemies. It's episode 286 of This Machine Kills. I'm Jathan, joined by Ed and producer Jeremy, as always. And y'all already know who it is uh, here with us today. We got one of our close friends, friend of the show, uh, Brian Merchant. Um, Also, General Ludd himself has graced us with with his presence. (laughs) Brian's book, new book, Coming out, you know, Brian's a, a, a tech columnist at the Los Angeles Times. Yeah, 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 that's impressive and stuff. But what we really care about here is <laughs> his new book is coming out uh, right, you know, right before this episode drops. So you can go grab the book now. It's called Blood in the Machine, The Origins of the Rebellion Against Big Tech. I mean, one, just one of the uh, fucking hardest titles to ever go uh, in existence. <laughs> uh, I love it. But but uh, importantly for us, this is, I think, like the definitive book on the on the Luddites, on Luddism, um, on its history, on its lessons. Like we'll get into it. But having now read first uh, an early draft of the book, and then having read the the finished manuscript, it's it's such a impressive piece of work, and also. Um, not what I was expecting when, like, when we were talking before, and I knew for a long time that you were writing this book on the Luddites, and you know, we had all talked about it, and like, 
I, I truly was not expecting um, a in-depth, rigorous piece of like historical narrative nonfiction. You know, I was thinking like, okay, it's going to be a book about the Luddites, but really it's going to be like using it as this like, as this trope to talk about things like AI or social media or whatever. But then when I cracked the book and I was like, no, like th- this is uh this is Taylor written like as a, a um uh f- as a historical narrative that will soon be on HBO Max. <laughs> I'm like <laughs> like it is like it is begging for that that treatment. Um and I I don't know. Like I was really blown away at what you had actually produced here. Um the amount of work uh that went into telling the story of the Luddites um, in this like TikTok kind of way, you know, in, in the journalist sense of TikTok, like going through the like the 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 day by day um, events, oh, you know, following different characters um, over the course of this really the kind of core 18 months of the Luddite rebellion, but then the, the aftermath that reverberated on for years and years and decades later, and then kind of constantly bringing us back to the present day in ways that are, are seamlessly integrated. Like Brian, I mean, hands like just a uh, 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 hat off to you. It is, it's, it, Dear listeners, if you think you know what this book is, you don't, <laughs> and, and you will be uh, greatly uh, and pleasantly surprised at what it actually is when you crack it open. Yeah, well, thanks so much. I mean, yeah, it, 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 it means a lot from another another crew of General Luds here, right? I mean, as we know from reading Luddite history, there were who knows how many General Luds out there, so I'm, I'm, I'm glad to be one of them. Um, and yeah, and thanks for the, for the note on on the craft of it. That really was kind of a decision I made. There was kind of a, a version that was just a little, that was a little more pedantic. I felt like, you know, this means this and the lessons, but just as I researched and as I read on, like the, just the story is just so wild. And some of these characters who are just, you know, young men, um, and, and women sort of setting out into this world that is just being, you know, just contorted against their will by the forces of technology and capital. Um, and, you know, trying to, you know, look for a way to exert themselves and, and, and being, you know, thwarted. I, it just felt like it would be a missed opportunity not to try to write it out to like bring readers right into the trenches with them. Um, so it, it was a real challenge and it took a while, but I, yeah, I think, I think it's something that, you know, maybe more people than would be interested in like the lessons of the Luddite kind of thing. Um, and maybe, a you know, someone who just likes history or narrative stuff might, might, might come to the Luddites and that's what we want to do. Right. We want to, we want to Luddite pill as many people as possible. That's that's right. Well, I mean, that's what it is because at the end of the day, it is this like extraordinarily thrilling uh, piece of of history, right? Like it is it is a it is a real thriller in in every sense of the word. So it's like, yeah, people who pick it up and they just want some uh, amazing historical narrative, and then they get luddite pilled by the end of it, you know. Um, but I think people are really jonesing for 
for Luddism. You know, we, we, we started by talking about all the strikes, all the, the militancy that's growing in labor, you know, hot labor summers turning into hot labor fall, uh, and, and on and on. We, we would be remiss not to mention the UAW's, um, sit up or, or stand up strikes, which are also just, um, out of this world on their own. I mean, strategically and tactically, um, but also the the sheer amount of collective organization that's gone into that, and the way they've already been able to build, uh, bend the uh, big three automakers to their will, um, already securing not everything they want, but things that people like you know. Uh, Steve Ratner, right, who was in the uh, Obama administration and was the head of the um, the auto industry bailout for Obama, you know, wrote this uh, this this extraordinarily bootlicking op-ed in the New York Times, being like, you know, our 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 economy and the election can't handle this kind of uh, uh, you know labor strike against the auto workers, and then like like a, a like two days afterwards, all of this stuff that he was. Is like the the you know the the automakers can't afford this that and the other thing and then like two days later they're like um we are willing to give this that and the other thing to labor <laughs> 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 and and it's like you know the the i think people are are are, are jones and for it like you know we've talked before um the the group of us that every time we write anything about luddism you know you had a great washington post op-ed you know i've written about it um you know i have this this essay for the conversation that uh, gets constantly passed around and revived. Um, you know, anytime Ed wrote about Luddism for Motherboard, like people would just jump on it. Like they were just hungry for it. As soon as they learned what it meant, they said, well, that that's me. I believe that. Yeah. I mean, and that's, you know, I think I, we also should mention maybe at this point that uh, the TMK crew shows up in the book uh, as uh, as some of the new Luddites. Um, and part of what you've been able to do here, which is so great, is to sort of build that like sort of sustained community here. And I'm seeing it, not just that reaction, which is great every time. Obvious, obviously, TMK doesn't have the reach of the Washington Post yet. Uh, but it's, it's, it's sort of like nurturing this whole community that I just, I see them come out of the woodwork, not like, Oh, that's interesting. Luddism, but it's just like, yeah, I'm a Luddite. Like, yeah. Like when, uh, so after that Washington post, uh, op-ed came out, uh, a bunch of Cato Institute mm-hmm. goons started like, <laughs> you know, branding about their banding about their like their cartoonish version of Luddism were like, well, they wanted to stop progress in 1811. And what would it have looked like if that happened? You'd all be, you know, wearing a, you know, a dirty old sweater. It was like what just completely just made out of made up out of whole cloth. But I didn't even really have to, I wasn't like, you know, get them boys or anything every i think ed you didn't actually you went after him too miles like everybody like just kind of in their mentions were like you are full of shit and it was just very gratifying to see that it was it was not something that was like surprising to a lot of people a lot of people already know like already people uh, they already are aware they already self-identify as luddites and in fact another uh another uh, uh a little uh 
a little tidbit I'll, I'll, I'll tease here. I've got a piece coming up from the Atlantic too. That's basically, it started out as like adapted stuff, but it ended up just being all, all new interview interviews with people like uh, Molly, who I already mentioned, who are now self-identifying as Luddites. And I talked to like Adam Conover from, from, um, the WGA and, and they, and they get it now. They get it in a way that was be unthinkable 10 years ago. Um, mm-hmm. And I think, you know, it, it does take some, we're obviously not going to take all the credit for that, but it, it, it does help to have sort of a locus of it to keep talking about Luddism and, and what it really means and why it's important. And, you know, but you're absolutely right. You, you, you both talked a, a bit about how um, the tech lash kind of was instantly co-opted and then and then sort of fizzled out um but it gave people sort of at least an inkling of what they wanted which is a a, a politics of of, of, of actual refusal over the worst impulses of Silicon Valley, of actual leadism, of actual, you know, thinking about what a democratically led system of technological development would look like, something that was actually equitable, actually beneficial uh, to people, not that can just be waved away with an oversight board or whatever. I, I love those quotes you guys gave me, um, which are uh, in the book too. So yes, a uh, lot of, lot of great, lot of great Luddites uh, out there flying the, flying the flag. That's right. That's right. And, you know, I think it's actually worth getting into because we do, you know, we do talk about Luddism both as, you know, as this like very historically grounded ideology, right? It is a politics of technology. It's a politics of refusal. It's a politics of labor, um, you know, and, and it's a politics against capital. And, and you know, and, and it, it is grounded in this, this kind of, you know, this movement, right? And so, like, while we do talk about Luddism in its, you know, historical grounding and kind of reviving um, and, and rediscovering the true meaning of what the Luddites are, um, you know, it, it's, it's actually very rare to see anything or hear anything, you know, whether it's on a podcast or on an op-ed that really spends the time to do that, like historiography of the Luddites beyond being like, this is what you think they are, but that's not what they really were. But like, I think this is the real value of your, of your book is that it, it, it amasses so much of the original, um, you know, so much of the historical literature, the archival literature, stuff that is out there and exists, um, but it exists all over the place and dispersed and often really hard to access because it is being written by historians who maybe themselves are not even very mainstream in history, let alone like for people outside of the discipline of history, right? Um, or it's being found in, you know, you, you did a really just amazing job of pulling together these stories of lives from people um, like Robert Blinko, right? Uh, you know, these kind of very famous celebrities of the early industrial age at the time who kind of had these you know, these, these big tell-all books written about their lives, right? The, the life of um, the, ex- the, the slave who escaped, was recaptured, escaped, you know, and, and kind of giving this, this real sense of, oh my God, this is what life on a plantation for, you know, 40 years is like, or like the, the, um, 
the 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 orphan um who was working in the satanic mills for decades and then had this life story kind of this expose of his life told um uh, and published and became this massive hit and became a a major influence for oliver twist right like the most famous orphan of them all and and you you do a really great job of assimilating um all of this different his all these different historical texts to tell the stories of pe- of these people, because at the end of the day, you know, while we treat them as as totems um, now, they the reason why we don't know that history, why we don't know the names of people like George Meller, for example, um, why we don't know these his uh, the 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 events of the time um, is in part because of the way that like that history has been erased because it's, you know, it's not the history that capital wants to tell. And so these people who should be folk heroes, we should be um, learning about them in our like, you know, social studies classes in elementary school in the same way that we learn about Paul Bunyan or Johnny Appleseed or something like that. We should be learning about these folk heroes and we, but we don't, and we know why we don't. Um, But I think like, could, could we actually do some of that real grounding of it in the history beyond treating the Luddites as a politics or as a totem? Um, but actually, like, what? who are they? Who were they? Well, like, what, how did this all start? Because it's not like one day somebody just picked up a hammer and then it was like off to the races. Like, there's a lot more going on. And and I think your book also shows as well, this was not a... Uh, a a little group of like ruffians, right? Like a, a little like friend group who were going around. So this was an extraordinarily militant and massive and organized uh, collect, like militant in the sense of like they were actually they had actual like military discipline um, in their organization. So could you lay lay that groundwork of who they actually and truly were? How the the Luddites are even more than we self-proclaimed Luddites even know of them today. Yeah. Yeah. And they, you know, and, and, and their actions, you know, go further than what most of us would advocate to advocate today too. Um, but yeah, I mean, they brought England to the brink. They really did. It was, um, it was a lot. People were describing it as, uh, you know, as uh, in terms of like a civil war, uh, breaking out in the industrial district. So, it, and it was, and there was, well, we'll get to it in a second, but so yeah, the, the Luddites were, uh, were, were cloth workers, um, artisans, um, uh, weavers, stocking frame knitters, um, and, and, and cloth finishers and, and, and the various people that were sort of allied to their cause, uh, who had comprised sort of the largest industrial base of workers in England, um, sort of at, at the onset of the industrial revolution. So in the, in the 1700s, um, up through the, the early 1800s, um, you know, England's chief export, it's the the bulk of its non-agricultural economy was, um, what was cloth production, uh, at the beginning of the 1700s, it was wool. And then that, that transferred over to, to, to cotton, cotton started becoming a big, um, uh, export, uh, for the reasons that you just, you touched on, uh, earlier, but 
So these workers were organized in, in what was known as like the domestic system, right? Most of them either worked at home or they worked in, in small shops. Uh, most of these workers were not rich, uh, but they did have a, a good degree of autonomy over their lives. They uh, would often you have, you know, have a hand loom on the second story of their cottage uh, maybe they would, if they, you know, did well enough, they would maybe have a second one and they'd welcome journeymen weavers or local folks from the uh, other weavers from the community to come in. Uh, they had little gardens. They had, they, they would work at home. They would work according to their own schedule. Um, and they would sort of buy and sell the inputs and outputs to, to a cloth merchant. Um, and, and so that was sort of the cottage industry. That's where the name comes from, the cottage industry. Um, and they had, uh, a you know a pretty a, a pretty good and predictable basically sort of uh, a life for many many generations um, and important to note it was all in orbit around technology which these cloth workers distinctly did not hate or dislike in fact they were very invested in their technology a lot of them would mod it to their specifications or make improvements on it and share it with the community they were technicians in a sense they understood this machinery they had to um so what happens is uh you know we you could go the long or the short of it but but basically uh you know, Adam Smith and the Lassie Fair proponents come onto the scene. And, you know, it, this ideology looks a, very attractive to a, a lot of the elites of the, of the day, um, some of whom have access to uh, a lot of capital. Um, and prior to the publication of uh you know uh, of the great works of of Dr. A Smith as the working men who hated him of the time um it, there was sort of a, a, a like a natural a natural system where people would pay fair price they would that was it was called the concept of fair price there's a sense that even the merchant who is maybe making more money than you would never try to screw you um you know you would you you would have arguments over how much work you put into something or how but you could usually figure it out and it was all fine what happens is when ideology sort of free market ideology enters the picture you start to get a, a shock troop of of industrialists who get really keen on sort of building the institutions that look like what would become the factory Providing labor um, to maximize the profits that they can get. Um, so sometimes they use newer machinery that is that has been more recently invented, um, but it's almost immaterial. Sometimes they use machines that have been um, around for a while or used to a different purpose, and they start to do what today we know as automation. Um, and they start to automate jobs that had not been automated, uh, whether because it was not possible to, or whether because it was just seen as, uh, as, as, as taboo, uh, or sort of would detrimental to a community to do so. Um, they, they start to, they start to embrace, um, you know, under the, you know, under the auspices of, of free market fundamentalism, basically, um, you know, they, they, they really kind of feel like this has either given them cover or they really buy it and they think it's virtuous. So automation starts 
starts picking up pace. And a lot, even that is sort of protested by the workers. It's illegal to unionize. There are laws on the books called the Combination Act. So the workers cannot uh, uh, legally collectively bargain for better conditions. So as you see automation ticking up and they're pushing the prices down that they offer, you know, the, the industry at large, that means that weavers, uh, the rates, the, the rates that they make for, for a garment also start turning down because now they're competing with the machinery. Um, now the, the entrepreneurs are also just like imagine Uber or Lyft today, they're blowing through all of the regulations and laws that are on the books that have governed the trade for a long time. So the weavers and the cloth workers petition parliament to sort of, you know, get them to follow the rules or to give them a minimum wage because basically this elite group of capitalists are starting, are profiting directly at their expense you know, that's important too. You set up a factory outside of town, you're starting, you undercut the working people, you're doing it very explicitly. Everybody knows you're doing it and you become hated in that community if you, if you violate the bonds enough. Um, uh, some, and some of these more ambitious entrepreneurs just didn't care. Um, and so it gets to the point by, you know, the, after the end of the first decade of the 1800s, uh, you know, the weaver's pay has tanked, like fallen by half. Um, you know, they can't feed their families in some cases. They're risking, um, you know, starvation in some cases. Um, other sort of areas that uh, of the cloth trade that have not been automated yet, they um, recognize that this is coming for them too, or they recognize that it's, um, that they need to stand in solidarity with the, with the other workers. Um, so after all that petitioning, all that peaceful sort of protesting, all that sort of appealing to the industrialists, which they do say, let's just work this out. Like, you know, let's figure out a way forward where it's not just a handful of people benefit and everybody else starves because that's no way to conduct a society. Um, all that fails. There's a huge uh, sort of uh, crash, economic crash, because England outlaws trade exports to, to their biggest markets as part of sort of um, a trade embargo on the war on France. And then they have a bad harvest. So basically, it's a perfect storm. And the, it, the entrepreneurial class starts recognizing this as a ch chance to even step up the automation even further. And with that, that's, you know, enough is enough. And the, the Luddites uh, emerge. They, they rise up in 1811 um, and they begin conducting the campaign that they're for, famous for. And it's not reactionary. Um, it is uh, very well organized. They had planned for this. As you said, they were, very, they were uh, many had a lot of um, knowledge about how to sort of conduct at least a small military campaign because they were often many times veterans of the war against Napoleon. Um, and they, they, you know, they would send a threatening letter to a, uh, to a, to a factory boss. And it would say, we understand that you have two hundreds of the obnoxious machines. Uh, they didn't care about the ones that weren't obnoxious to them, that weren't skewing, uh, that weren't concentrating profits in the hands of a few elites at their direct uh, uh, misfortune. So if you take them down, you know, we'll call it good. If you do not, you'll expect a visit from Ned Ludd's army or from General Ludd. And it would be signed Ned Ludd, who's this avatar that they probably made up or maybe was a folk figure um, of a, a boy who had smashed his 
his frames, uh, his master's frames after he'd been whipped for not working hard enough. Um, and so they under, they, they use this nom de plume, Ned Ludd, General Ludd, King Ludd. Um, and if those factory owners don't take down the frame frames, sure enough, they show up and they smash just those machines. Uh, they'll hold up the overseer at gunpoint or sneak in through the windows. Um, and then they'll say, they better stay, stay down, uh, or, or we'll come back and do the whole place. And that opens up a huge eruption of, of activity. The tactic proves wildly successful. A lot of the other entrepreneurs and factory owners restore wages to what they were paying before the automated machinery say, okay, okay, okay. Raise the white flag. Other ones don't other industrial districts. It starts in Nottingham, uh, realize that, uh, that, that they can use this system to carry out tax, uh, uh, sort of attacks against the factory owners in their own district. So without any central organizing really going on, there's probably some communication, but, but not a ton. Um, they can emulate it. So the Luddite, uh, the Luddite action spreads from, from Nottingham to Manchester, to York, to the West Riding. Um, and pretty soon there's just uh, a, a Luddite a, a raid on a factory uh, nearly every day at its height. And it's just thousands and thousands of machines being smashed. And it's truly a massive sort of uh, event. Man, I a see what you're doing for other people. And I just, I want it so bad. I want it to happen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We've never made the connection before explicitly, but Ned is short for Edward. <laughs> Edward, Edward Ludd Jr. over here. Just don't look too closely at my birth certificate, okay? <laughs> I was definitely born in 1995. Wow, hiding in sight. Yeah, time. this is why my British accent is so bad. I'm trying to throw people off the, the scent. <laughs> <laughs> who, who knew that Ned Ludd was a vampire? Yeah, <laughs> a, a black vampire. Uh, might as well be Blade. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> um, I'm going to harken back to an early, early episode, and uh, and, and we're going to bestow the, the name of the ludicrous Luddite on it again. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, Luda. Every time Luda, you know, goes, it's Luda, but it's just Ludism. It's just a nice little <laughs> intro. <laughs> <It's All> <laughs> <awesome>. <laughs> It's such an extraordinary history. Like the, you know, I mean, tr- like learning the, the, the true extent of it as well that like, you know, and they were folk heroes. People loved them. People loved yeah. the Luddites as well. This was not a time where they were uh, seen as like um, an out of control gang, you know, a, a plague on society or something like that. No, they were seen as, these uh as as folk heroes of the age like contemporary folk heroes people supported them people loved them people were eager to take the oath to to become a a luddite they were they were like robin hood of the day and in fact like you know i i point robin hood and ned ludd robin hood ned ludd they were from the same district the same sort of tradition of of dissent uh you know it's probably 
was there's some relation there when the name was 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 made up they they had some idea of what they were doing um and it absolutely they had songs sung about them you know there's general ludd's triumph which was a which was a hymn that was one of the songs that even survives today that you can uh you can you can find the lyrics and uh they yeah they you know embraced by lord byron who uses his very first uh speech in the house of lords to defend the luddites uh he really you know he kind of goes goes all out it's a big florid speech um and it was maybe one of the you know most some of the some of the biggest press that they got i guess in defense in, in defense of them because all the other sort of levers of power were were against them you know the prince was was his his office uh you know the 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 home secretary which was kind of in charge of dealing with the dispute uh just you know d- dealing with the the uprising dealt with it by just like sending troops more and more you know ultimately you know there were at least 12,000 maybe up to 35,000 troops that could that were sort of installed in the to to oppose the Luddites. um yeah, it was it, it it was wild, and they had to do that because, like you said, they were popular. They had they had the, uh, the the favor of the public because everybody saw it for you know what it was at the time, which was uh, just like Robin Hood had been. It was uh, resistance against oppression. You know, the public had no illusion ab- about the situation. They didn't think that they were smashing machines because they were dummies. They didn't think they were smashing machines because they didn't understand how the technology worked and, you know, what progress was. They knew that they were out there in the trenches fighting exploitation. And that's why they would go out and literally just like cheer them on as they did it sometimes while like the flustered magistrate would try to rally some troops to, to chase them down. Um, it would often be to the soundtrack of the cheering public. I mean, it really shows as well the power of two centuries of, of capitalist ideology, right? That like, like the, the reason why the public loved the Luddites and, and didn't like, uh, you know, while there certainly were some edit, like editorial writers who were kind of mouthpieces for the aristocracy or the new emerging capital class, um, who would paint the Luddites in these, you know, florid ways of these are villains and so on. That was extraordinarily rare. It was really only truly the people who were like trying to be mouthpieces for, um, like propagandists, explicit propagandists propagandists for um for capital and for the the uh aristocracy who would say that the public was they didn't have the the ideological scales over their eyes they weren't beat they didn't have two centuries of being told that technology is inevitable it's progress cat there is no alternative to capitalism entrepreneurs are god's uh you know uh, bestowed you know uh, a gift to us and you know uh, innovators are um, the closest thing to profits that, you know, all of this kind of bullshit that we take, either we take it for granted or you have to do of so much work every to day. disassemble yeah. it. Um, that like, but these people didn't have any of that. They were free of the, the ideological burden um, of kind of this pro capital uh, pro, you know, not just pro technology, but pro technology in the very specific ways that capital decides it's valuable to build and use technology, right? Like they were free of all that, which allowed them to 
see the Luddites for who they were, what they were. And I think the really important thing, and you really emphasize this in the book, and I, I love this, that it's not just that they were not anti-technology in this wanton way, right? That they were, I love the way you say, you know, they were these skilled technicians themselves. It was, you know, they weren't uh, against innovation. They were against these specific uses of technology. The obnoxious uses are the ones that are harmful to the commonality. Um, but also what the, the thing that they were really focusing on, and this gives even more, I think, leverage to the idea that this was truly a, an anti-capitalist movement is that the, the, the technology they were actually smashing when they were smashing the frames was the technology of the factory. The, the that that the factory system which is universally seen as you know it, it's not just a, a a kind of anomalous piece of poetry that's lasting you know describing them as these dark satanic mills like that was the the universal perception of these factories was this is where the devil does his work um, and and if you can escape it or destroy it then it is your obligation to escape or destroy the factory it was already clear then i mean i mean perhaps more clear that you know like you're saying they didn't have those the ideological blinkers on where you know after two centuries later we're taught that oh well you know yeah there's a lot of bad stuff during the industrial revolution and some you know uh, poor children got got treated badly but it was all you know along the road to progress and you know it, we should be thankful for all of the technological bounty that we have today no like they saw the factory rising as these like monuments of immiseration and that was very clear to them just even like in the architecture alone what that forecast uh for their futures and 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 their lives so yes it was exactly uh as much uh, opposing this new sort of uh domineering and uh, form of work that they you know they had another phrase that, that that was they hated to stand at their command right ep thompson talks about that in his great um history the making of the english working class as like that was one of the chief grievances like before that you you had so you had control you had agency you had dignity but when you have to go into this windowless building and stand at somebody else's command it just you know imagine going from not even sort of understand you know having any sort of contact with that idea to boom there's a factory outside your town and now if you want to earn a living you have to go and do what this overseer says for 11 hours a day. And he tells you when you can uh, take a break for lunch and when you can piss. And it's just such a brand new sort of uh, just invasion into this, into the community as they knew it, that, yeah, that was, they were, they were fighting that tendency too. And that's another reason that even the people whose jobs stood to technically benefit from the industrial revolution, like colliers and coal workers, steel workers, they marched with the Luddites because they saw this just entire mode of work, of, of work that was being imposed on them, factorization and all of the, all of the suffering that came along with it, it was already starting to leak out how bad, you know, factory work was, especially for the, the people who had to endure it. You know, it, a lot of children, um, unskilled workers, uh, migrant workers, and, you know, people who were 
vulnerable, vulnerable people. Uh, and, and they just get chewed up and torn up by the, by the factory. And yeah, part of it is the, you know, the, the skilled workers saying, we don't want that to happen to us too. But part of it is just in general is a kind of a vote against that, right? Like we are really going to try to resist this thing before it engulfs us all. And, I mean, if anything, it's like that they lost that, that battle. Like if, you know, I've, there's, there's a, a couple really interesting sort of speculative um, histories or, or done about, you know, what, what if the Luddites won, you know, and that is, that's the one that gets me. Like if they had, imagine if they had triumphed and instead of like the factory, instead of this t- top down mode of, you know, all of us just being perpetually sort of having to stand at their command, as they said, like, what could life look like? I mean, we, you know, we don't know. It's, it's yeah. Wild. You know, in one of your interviews, there's a flash and evocative moment that gave me that sort of alternate history. Um, vision right when you talked about how work was moved out of the domestic system instead of having songs sung with people working with family maybe you know going through gardens it's instead now into these like fucking uh hellish cauldrons where the devil lives and you get to you know have the privilege of uh being forced to to work on command or else you starve for eight hours a day right you know i think alternate histories they're really fascinating Alternate the, my, one of my favorite alternate histories is the one where John Brown's raid succeeds and he's like he ends up dying and in the in the in the war to to carve out an independent Black South, um, but ends up lip creating this world where um, you know there's a there's a Black Republic and it eventually becomes socialist and it wages war against the North and also makes it socialist and then they help out all the other socialist revolutions and the world is communist. But they're still white nationalists, and they pass around a manifesto where the nightmare world is our world, and that's what they pine for deeply <laughs> every day. And I think about you know similarly, like in a luddite you know alternate history, this would be the nightmare world that secret anti uh, luddites would pass around a world in which we lose not only the battle over the over what form work will take right but also so thoroughly are told and convinced that one um you the only way in which work and labor can be organized is under you know absolutist control mechanisms uh two any real technological advance has to happen in private hands out of democratic oversight and that any attempt to do so is anathema to the inherent nature of technology and three that anyone who entertains ideas that contradict the first two is insane and should never be listened to and doesn't know what they're talking about right um you know i think that's also one of the reasons why i really have loved um and 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 loved seeing people's reactions especially on the eve of the publication of the book because while that we are in the nightmare scenario it is really hopeful and optimistic or it raises optimism in me to see people only really need to have those two those connections made between now and then to be like oh i get it or to have that struggle with the writers guild and be like oh i get it and from there you know it's so much easier to start chipping away against the ideology and then start moving in ways where we can show solidarity maybe we're not like raiding the factories yet or the data centers yet but you know the germ of that idea yeah is is out there now i think like this you know, we, we joke a lot about, you know, property damage and industrial sabotage, but um, 
the the real barrier i mean the bar- uh, great barrier is you know of course the united states government but an even bigger barrier is the fact that a lot of people just don't actually think of property and don't think of the industrial process as things that should be intervened on um and that usually when they are they're done for reasons that are unhinged and have no relation to the reality of the thing and not the politics of the thing right the idea that these things are not political they're divine they're part of the economy they're the lifeblood of the system they they're above reproach right, right. instead yeah. of like as you talk about as the luddites understood and as we all need to understand these things are they don't they didn't come out of the ground immaculately they were constructed and there were decisions made about why they should be put there and those decisions are antithetical to a lot of our interest in most of the most of the cases. Yeah, absolutely, it's not elemental. Um, it's like, and, and that's why other sort of historians of technology have, you know, uh, who, who have have sort of, you know, really trumpeted the Luddite example too. You know, David Noble famously kind of said the Luddites were the last ones to to really see technology in the present tense. You know, without those ideological blinders on, without all these assumptions kind of baked in that, oh, this is just the way things are, you know, it's just kind of like a line that goes up and up and up. And you just, it's either the gas is on the technology pedal or it's off. Like, you know, you don't want to take your foot off uh, because it's done X and X and X. Um, yeah, I, 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 lo- I love that framing ahead of, of, of this vision because I yeah, thinking back to the Luddites, if the Luddites had won and said, oh man, like imagine a future where even if you don't work in a factory, you're just, you, and, and you don't actually have to see your boss. You're just, you have to look at a screen all the time and it has, and it tells you where exactly to go. It's just, it's telling you how long you have to get there. It is organizing your labor for you. You can't talk back at all. You can't. You have no recourse if you don't want to lose your your gig. Uh, they, I think they would find you know, the idea of, of Uber and and like just absolutely horrifying. Um, yeah, and I think I think that the Luddite that's the story makes pretty clear why, and you know, make it make it it helped clarify to me at least you know, just how granular the decision-making process is, how much say that we can and should have over how technology might be developed and, and, you know, how it can be used to, to organize, uh, you know, a work or just collective effort in, in, in different ways. And there's just so much potential that's going untapped because we keep, I know Ed, as you are a fan of, 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 of pointing out um, it quite rightfully. So just, we keep, putting a tiny sliver of the populace with the, with the same kind of traits, you know, just extremely rich, uh, you know, old white dudes, mostly, but Silicon Valley guys, they are now, they just are making the decision, decision, decision about how technology gets rolled out. And we have our, our, our choices to respond to it and to try to play rear guard action all the time. Um, you know, it's just in, in, in the day of the, Luddites, it was, you know, these, these lords and, and sort of ambitious entrepreneurs who are able to sort of bend the, the ear of the Lord or the magistrates or, you know, or, or, or the bankers, or you already had, and then sort of build these factories and kind of force people to work in them or, or, or go hungry. And today we have venture capitalists who just dole out, say like, okay, we deem you as worthy of build, uh, of, of building the next app. That's going to decide how people work or, or, or how they're surveilled while they, while they do their tasks. And here's, you know, $2 billion, you go build it. And then we're just constantly 
having to r- respond as a public to that. I mean, and, and, and your, both of your work has pointed out how it's just folly to think that, you know, voting with your wallet or something like that is any kind of a response that could counter that because it's not, you know, it's just, especially in the case of, you know, Uber and, and Lyft and the gig work companies, they were just propped up for so long by such large venture capital war chests that, there was, you know, consumers were basically helpless. The workers were basically helpless. And now we've got this new mode of work entrenched and we just, we kind of have to deal with it. We have, we have to fight back. We have to do Luddism. Yeah. I mean, this is the real innovation of Silicon Valley is innovating their way around the problem of consumer demand uh, and people actually wanting the things that they build. They, they say, well, if you have enough money, then you can, uh, you can, you can force your way through the barricade of, of, people trying to vote with their wallets. Um, and and I, I think as well, if we take seriously as well, the kind of the, the alternative history, like, like, uh, hinge point, um, of the, of the Luddite rebellion, it's not just that it was like, we're pointing to a mass uprising of labor that was focused on the machinery of capital. It's like, yes, of course, like all of that seems like, okay, well, that's a great chance. What, 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 what's the, you know, the hinge point here, but, it's also because like the Luddite Rebellion, as we've been talking about, it's really worth emphasizing. It didn't just emerge randomly. It was a direct response to emerging conditions at that time. Like a, a lot of new stuff was happening in terms of the organization of uh, the political economy, the or- organization of who has power uh, and and capital um, and who doesn't and and how those things are kind of merging together in in new ways and so you know to be more specific here you know it's not just that it's the origins of the factory system right which is major right this is a response to the factory system which goes on to organize the entire like capitalist production system it's also the fact that as you said it's like you know this. Uh, uh, Smithian ideology of laissez-faire and free markets is starting to get, you know, have a real hold over people. But it's also on, in addition to that, it's also the idea of entrepreneurship is really new at this time. The idea, like an entrepreneur or an entrepreneurial class or entrepreneurship as an act, like these are really new concepts. And you talk about this in the book, it comes from, you know, the French for what, like adventurer, right? So these are like adventurer capitalists. Um, But the idea that you would do... I like that one or undertaker. Yes, right? right. They're they're the undertakers of capital, exactly. Um, but this whole idea that you would like do a do a venture had you know undertake some kind of risky activity, um, undertake some kind of investment for then the potential reward of profit, right? Not a fair price, but like exorbitant profit. This is new. And in addition to that, this is the squashing of the Luddites, you know, the, the Prince Regent, you know, um, and the, uh, and, and the home office, the home office is also a new concept at this time as well, that you would have a whole kind of government department that's overseeing the domestic affairs in this way, and that it would have these extreme policing and surveillance powers. That was new. So there's a lot of new stuff 
happening. It's this whole bubbling cauldron of like the industrial state, the the state of state capitalism, and and this is the Luddite rebellion, you know, the squashing of the Luddite rebellion, and the the mass hangings, the spies, the uh, you know, the 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 laws making frame breaking, a treasonous act punishable by hanging, um, laws making oath taking, um, uh, a treasonous act as well, uh, like. You know, all of these things are coming together where, you know, the squashing of the Luddite rebellion is, if not the first, then one of the first instances of the state acting on behalf of capital to secure the rights and property and interest of capital over the mass of the public. Um, like, I think that's what makes the, if the Luddite rebellion were successful, such an interesting alternative history, because it's not like, oh, what if they were successful and then we were all smashing the technology? It's like, no, if they were successful, it would have meant overturning everything that structures society for the next 200 years the factory system the idea of entrepreneurship as the most supreme calling that you can answer the idea that the state should act on the behalf of capital um you know on and on and on like all of that stuff is new at this time. It's it's all coming together. The Luddites were directly responding to these new emerging political economies and material conditions, things that we now take for granted as eternal. It's always been that way. And, and it, it's never been differently. But no, 200 years ago, it was being born and people were saying, I don't like this. I I I, I want I want to smother this in its cradle. Um, but it took like unbelievable militant power um, to to squash it. Could talk about this. Talk about this kind of all these emerging material conditions. Also talk about the way in which like these entrepreneurs uh, did get kind of deputized as arms of the state they were you know they had squadrons of dragoons and they were building fortresses around their factories like with cannons like everything necessary to not just defend and repel against the luddites but ride up to their their saddle and the blood of the luddites as one of the uh you know most odious factory owners at this time put it yeah, no, I think that's all. That's all a fair characterization, and it's just an. It's yet another. I think reason why you know we are just kind of uh, taught to ignore this chapter in 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 history because the you know if you do take the Luddite side, then you have to question all of those things, and you end up at a very different place uh, than 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 where uh, most modern day capitalists want you to be. Uh, I think it's fair to say, yeah, the Luddites were basically shock troops, I guess, in the resistance to industrial capitalism. They were on the front lines there and they were fighting it because it wasn't, it hadn't, you know, it hadn't materialized yet in the way uh, that that we understand it to be um, today. And as you said, it required an immense amount of, 
of, of resources, of force, of punitive legal codes, of, of, of just a sheer determination for the state to basically overturn the public will. You know, we talked a lot about how popular the Luddites were and how they were folk heroes. So the state not only had to crush the Luddites, but it also had to crush them so decisively that people thought uh, that they were the caricatures that they've become today. And so they also sort of conducted a, a propaganda campaign, uh, the fruits of which are still paying off today. You read like the very first proclamations that the Prince Regent's office is sending out. And like a note here, like the Prince Regent was like so checked. He's almost like a Trumpian figure. Like he just, you know, he barely is like kind of aware of the Luddites. Like he would rather just kind of um, do uh, uh, like hang out in an opium den and just like <laughs> go a little fox hunting, yeah, you know? Yeah, <laughs> and just kind of deputize all this, uh, all the all the managing of his affairs. Um, so it's it's his office and and the various sort of heads of that home office, as you say, it, it hadn't really. It was kind of like a, a a small office at the time. It didn't it didn't have much staff. There's just like a few people there at first. Um, it, 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 and it hadn't in no way been, you know, in charge of like putting, trying to deal with an organized, uh, uprising or any large scale disturbance at all. So it just kind of sent, just kept sending more, more and more troops up. Um, so yeah, I mean, it, it was, it required this, just this huge concerted effort. Um, and you know, if, you know, if there were like wonks, like, you know, like liberal wonks out at the time, you could imagine them going like, well, look, if instead of, uh, you know, if it, it would have only cost like this much to just like pay the pay the benefits, the welfare benefits to the, the weavers who are uh, looking for it instead of, you know, the military budget that it took to, you know, send just thousands and thousands of troops. But it's tr- it's it's true. The state made a choice to like invest its time, resources, and power in crushing this rebellion. Where people were, it was no, it was no like mystery uh, that people were starving because that they were being put out of work. And at the time that a handful, a relative handful of entrepreneurs were profiting immensely, like that was, it was known. And it was what was particularly monstrous about, about this, about this moment is that they would even sort of have to like, at least pay a little lip service to it when, you know, whenever a petition would, would come to parliament that said like, Hey, can we at least get a minimum wage or like some, some tiny regulations? Or what if we just got like a little bit of money? Cause we're starving, huh? And then they would sit there and say like, well, yes, we understand that it's uh you know, it's just kind of like this fluke of trade at the, of the moment that it's, it's too bad, but um, it would be unfair to sort of, uh, to, to, you know, jam up the workings of the great sort of invisible hand that, uh, that Adam Smith put forward. So, uh, we cannot intervene. We cannot interfere. It would. So in, in a, in a case where, you know, and that's a way that it's just way more radical than, you know, today there, a lot of that was a lot more radical because in, you could not in, you could not have a society endure with like such sustained monstrosity on, on every front, you know, no, just no assistance to to just thousands of starving people, even when it was clear the cause. So yes, a tremendous effort. And I think at one point I point out that like where they had stationed the troops that was, you can almost kind of imagine it if we're to keep up our speculative uh, history, uh, you know, framework, which I'm, which I'm loving. You can look at that as like, 
those warring sides where like the, the districts where the Luddites were working on one side and then you had the troops garrisoned between them and the factory kind of just trying to safeguard this emergence of the industrial system. And the battle lines were drawn basically all over uh, wherever the industrial revolution was taking shape. When you look between then and now, you know, what, you know, I think we see similarities between some of the struggles that we're facing, but also we are in a position that is in some ways worse, in a lot of ways worse, in that, you know, we lack the sort of, uh, you know, folklore, history, practice, ideology, solidarity, even honestly the room to do the things in, right? Partly thanks in part to the surveillance, both of the state and of each other. So, I mean, you know, I think with people accepting and adopting the Luddite, you know, uh, POV and framework for thinking through things and understanding the technology and the world around them and the political economy of how it gets rolled out, you know, what do you think are some of the steps that happen next? I mean, is this a, do you feel like, you know, whereas in the past it might have been partly because of the lack of, you know, democratic institutions. It had to be pressure from the masses that today there's also room or opportunity for this Luddite POV being incorporated into the legal infrastructure, to the political framework. Or do you think it has to return to the roots and it really does come down to a question of like, will people rise up and in one way or another apply the same sort of pressure, the same sort of, you know, massive action that would, you know, yield concessions from these tech titans and these entrepreneurs? these bosses. Yeah. I think, you know, as Gavin Mueller, a, a, a great, um, Luddite writer and, and, and scholar himself, he pointed out in his review of, of my book, which is, I can't, can't believe they had him review my book from the New York times. That was cool. Love but he, he did. <laughs> I loved it. Oh, I didn't on. see that. I missed. No. That. Yeah. He, yeah. He reviewed it. It was, it was a good, it was really good. Oh yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, a little let it let it action there. Um, but yeah, he you know it, th- those two points he makes are yeah, it's it, it, it's true that it, it was kind of a tactic of last resort in some ways. Um, and but from that fact, you know, we can we can take a number of lessons. It was a tactic of last resort because unionizing was illegal, and the the prince regent was both checked out and a doofus, and his is. Um, uh, home office was was so was so militant. The legal code so punitive. So yeah, the those conditions w- were worse, and and it sort of gave rise to this tactic of Luddism. But in the fact that it became so popular, it became such a rallying cry. I think we need to draw the right lessons there that such a thing is possible. And we're seeing echoes of that in the fact in, in just, you know, even calling back to the beginning of this episode here, where we're talking about the, the writer's strike winning this, this protracted labor battle by holding out, you know, not, not, not giving an inch opposing AI uh, opposing the, the exploitative use of AI against them by, by studios, by the bosses. And that just resonated. It resonated like, like wildfire. So the, the potentiality is there, you know, for, for, for a modern Luddism, you know, I don't, you know, I don't, we can, we could debate whether or not you would need, you know, something like sabotage in the equation. Um, I, you know, I would be much more uh, sort of, 
probably uh, uh, able to be convinced by in, in like the climate situation for, for like a climate leadism. That's basically what, um, you know, Malm is, is advocating for and is how to blow up a pipeline stuff. But you know, we can, we really should do so much more to sort of embrace and sort of uh, really just streamline the Luddite ethos because we ha- we now not only have uh, a demonstration of just how uh, powerful it can be, we ha- how popular it can be. People love. I mean, people sided with the writers over the studio heads by like astonishing mar- margins. It was like seventy two to nineteen in favor of the writers. And I think a large part of that equation is because a lot of people are feeling this anxiety over technology being used by their managers against them in ways they have no say over. And they feel like their identities are at stake. Their jobs are at stake. Their ability to earn a living is at stake. And, you know, just like in Luddite times, I can go, you know, that, 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 that applies to the precarious gig worker, um, and to, you know, the unionized screenwriter. Uh, so they had power. That's how they were able to, you know, mount this resistance. They were well organized and they had power. Um, and they were able to sort of broadcast the mythology a little bit. All three of those things are important. Um, I think, you know, on a larger scale level, we, we also need to start thinking about ways that we, you know, unskew the mode of technological development so that it's not so heavily favored toward just a tiny elite. I, you know, that's why I'm so, uh, I, I, I'm so amenable to your, to your writing about abolishing venture capital, um, and trying to find ways to just strike at that piece of it too, because it's, you know, I don't think there's going to be one silver bullet because we have such a, such a mountain to climb. But like you were saying, there's never been more hunger for this, than than before labor up you know is is gaining power uh there's uh such a such a such a large corpus of technological criticism that people are willing to sort of dig into and it's just becoming uh a, a much much easier as you said ed and jathan i think at b- different points in our conversation mm. to sort of get people to draw these connections and then put them into action it's an in- it's an interesting time right it's there's mm-hmm. a lot stacked against the worker but there is a lot of space uh, you know to to push back right now there's 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 a lot of there's a lot of room uh for some maneuvering here and there's uh ample opportunity to uh reach for those hammers proverbial or otherwise mm-hmm. I know that's right. In the you know in the past we've had conversations about how do we talk to people about Luddism, and I think the uh, the writer strike, the uh, Screen Actor Guild strike, is a is a good like talking point, quote unquote, like water cooler talking point about like implementing, you know, showing that Luddism actually works. You know, and I'm talking in the sense of like you know forced technologies, like technology watching you at work, or you know keystroke monitors, things like that things that take away just a little like bit by bit a little bit of our privacy so you know it's not just artistic it's technology creeping in every possible way into our life and it's just a it's a it's a gateway to talk to people about it yeah i mean the, yeah. there is just more and more of these gateways you know we it, with the the uaw strike now you know you mentioned as well um the 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 huge uh public support with the wga and screen actors guild um the same with the uh um, UAW, you know, it, it's, you know, there, there's 70 plus percent 
uh, support for the UAW versus the automakers right now. So it's a, it's a mass up, you know, a swell of public support that people are standing with the workers and understanding and, you know, UAW, same thing, right? Like, you know, Sean Fain's making spe- you know, speeches and behind him is a, 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 a placard or poster that's about, you know, resisting automation and its impacts, you know, in the factory, right? And so it's like, you know, it, it, it's, there are just more and more of these opportunities. Um, and I think it's, it's also, you know, your, your book is coming at the ideal time. It's dropping at the ideal time. And, you know, and I think, you know, for people listening, you gotta go pick up blood in the machine. You know, it is, it is so much more than, than what we've talked about here. It's so much more than what you think it is. Um, it's so much more than what we've talked about on TMK. Like it is, you know, it is truly a book, um, that is, is necessary for, understanding not only the Luddites as a politics or as a totem, but the Luddites as a, as a potential, like really truly understanding the potential that Luddism has um, embedded within it. Uh, and, and that, you know, they were once able to succeed and can rise up and succeed again. And so go pick up blood in the machine, immerse yourself in uh, it's, it's gripping and thrilling narrative. Um, you'll, you'll get riled up as you read it. I know, I know you will. Um, and I also want to point as well, you talk about, you know, there, there are times to pick up the hammer, you know, and one of those times is the, uh, the Luddite tribunal that is that you, uh, Brian have organized with an all-star lineup of people at the star bar in, um, in, in Brooklyn, New York later this, uh, in October, uh, where, you know, I will be there in spirit. Fortunately, I won't be able to make the flight out to New York just for this, but, you know, Ed will be there. Jeremy will be there mm-hmm. along with some close friends of the show, Alex Press, Paris Marks, and the aforementioned Molly Crabapple. Um, you know, we, we will have, you know, you, you are going to have a, a good old fashioned Luddite tribunal, uh, a, a sledgehammer technologies. They'll be meeting. They'll be getting up close and personal with each other. It's, it, I, I know it's going to be a, a, a great time. And yet another one of these, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's propaganda of the deed. You know, that's what we need. Propaganda of the deed. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, it, it, it'll be great. October 12th in New York, if you're around Star Bar uh, at, uh, at, at 7 p.m., I think. Uh, yeah. yeah, we'll be putting uh, putting the technologies uh, on trial, and there will be a sledgehammer on hand to uh, dole out their fate. So it'll, Hell be, yeah. it'll be a good time. Um, be very nice. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it so much. Um, you know, I, I wish I could be there, but I, I I'm I'm really excited to hear all about it um, from from Jeremy, from Ed, and from from everybody. So. Yeah, well, I think that's a good as place of any to leave it. Brian, thank you so much for coming on. Um, thank you. You know, this is this this is this is an episode that's been a long time um, coming. We've been very eager to finally talk about your book, and I'm 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 excited that your book is out. I can't imagine how excited you are that it's like finally, you know, it's finally dropping tomorrow as of our recording time. It will be out by the time the episode drops. 
yeah, it's been a long road. Uh, but yeah, I can't wait to get it out there and to uh, hopefully uh, convert some some more Luddites to the cause. And, and thank you all for, for doing what you do and uh, making sure people have access to those hammers when they need them. So General Lud salutes you all. <laughs> that's right salute uh and everybody else can find us of course at patreon.com slash this machine kills for additional premium episodes every single week um get you get your luddite fixed there uh get it get it here um and we'll we'll see you next time later adios, adios. Let's chunk each punk and replace